0: is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles
2: Feldman. Senator Dianne Feinstein might be sicker than what we were led to believe
1: we will go in-depth. California's pot industry is facing a major buzz kill. Also, we have a simple secret that can apparently improve your mental well-being. Don't fly away, because you don't want to miss it.
2: Oh, I get it. This is another one of those hints. Yes. We did that a few days right. ago with a different story. Right, but, right. So but a riddle a you're
1: going to have to figure out by the right. time we get to the segment. Hopefully... Yeah, that's the hint. Right. Oh, Okay. So people have to keep
2: score, listen to the hints. It's hard work. Yeah. But we start though, with Senator Dianne Feinstein and questions surrounding her health. Dr. David Cutler is a family medicine physician at Providence St. John's Health Center. That's in Santa Monica. Also with us is Luis Decipio, who is a political science professor at UC Irvine. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, doctor, let me start off with you. Uh, as I understand it from a New York Times report today, uh, in having a bout of shingles, Senator Feinstein also contracted encephalitis um, and some other uh, complications from that. So my question to you is, someone at her age uh, with that condition and that kind of complications, uh, what would that likely mean from a cognitive point of view? What are the dangers there?
3: Well, the danger there would be that she would have decreased cognitive function, but it's really true of anyone having any medical complication when they get into the older age range that they're going to have some likelihood of decreased physical strength, decreased mental capacity, decreased work and exercise capacity as well from almost any illness. And shingles is no exception.
1: And uh, Lewis, uh, taking a look at the politics of this. Why is there, I mean, not not everybody on the Democratic side, but some seem reticent to go to her or go to her staff and say, look, look. Uh, uh, this is this is uh, an unsustainable situation. She's got to step down. What is that hesitation uh, in regarding? Is it because of a vote on a committee, or what is it?
4: Well, many of the members of the Senate are quite old. Um, she's on the the oldest end, but the average age is is sixty five. So her colleagues are not the best people uh, to give her that sort of advice. Um, you know, she's served for a long, long time, and I don't think she has a vision of herself that doesn't involve the Senate. Um, so her staff are unlikely to be able to convince her if she's not uh, willing to go on her own.
2: Doctor, am I right to go back to the medical uh, issue here? Encephalitis is an inflammation of the brain, yes?
3: It is, and it's a little bit different than meningitis, which is we're all more familiar with, which is an inflammation of the, the lining outside of the brain. But encephalitis invel- involves the brain tissue itself. It's a lot uh, more rare than meningitis, and its course is a little bit less predictable.
2: I was going to ask, uh, what would be, for anyone of any age, let alone somebody of the age of Senator Feinstein, what would the prognosis be long-term in terms of not only physical health but but mental capability?
3: Well, it's it's very hard to predict. As I said, it has a much less predictable course. It could be very mild, and there could be no long-term effects. There could be more serious long-term effects. And the only way to really measure this is with a detailed uh, neurocognitive evaluation, a neuropsychological evaluation to look at the whole array of brain functions that we'll measure. Uh, We'll usually do simple tests in our office just by assessing a patient's ability to recall. We'll look at simple executive functions like drawing a clock or placing blocks in the right-shaped receptacle and then ask them about how they're able to perform their activities of daily living. That is generally how we'll assess someone's uh, neuropsychological functioning.
1: Uh, Lewis, how politically disturbing is it uh, that according to some reports, uh, Governor Newsom tried to get in touch with the senator and, and uh, uh, was not able to communicate with her. Uh, some family members, I think, have indicated that they've not been able to talk with her, that the staff is shielding her from that. How much of a uh, problem is that?
4: Well, I think it's a very serious problem for her, but I think it's more of a problem for for the state and the country. Um, her vote is very critical on you know much that uh, uh, the Senate um, has to consider over the next uh, few months. Uh, obviously, uh, judicial confirmations have been the one uh, because she serves on the Judiciary Committee, but also you know hopefully there will be some resolution to the uh, the debt limit and and lots of lots of budget negotiations. In a nearly evenly divided Senate, her vote is critical, and it's not. Clear that she has the capabilities on every day, you know, every given day, uh, to be able to uh, judge what's what's best for uh, the state of California.
2: Doctor, one last question for you: If you had a patient who uh, had a bad bout, apparently, of, of shingles, uh, then had a complication of encephalitis, added to that, advanced uh, age, what would your advice be to that patient in terms of their activity level at this point?
3: Well, without addressing this particular case, because I don't have information specifically what's going on with her, but I Understood. would we could expand it to almost any illness and almost any patient, at, certainly at a senior age but other ages. If there's evidence of decreased uh, cognitive functioning in any way, we would send them for detailed neuropsychological evaluation to see what their functioning level was. And then show, demonstrating to them, look, this is what the objective tests are. This is how it may limit your activities. You and your family and the other people around you will need to decide how you're going to function in the future. We, we deal with this all the time, specifically with physicians in the hospital who might be older and might be showing signs of cognitive decline that will want to assess their neuropsychological testing and to see if they're still able to do things like surgery or to perform medically as well in the hospital.
1: All right. Uh, Dr. David Cutler with Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Also want to thank our other guest, Luis Decipio, political science professor at UC Irvine.
2: Right now, though, uh, California's pot industry is facing what's being called an extinction event. Here to explain is Michelle Magogat, a cannabis attorney here in Los Angeles. Michelle, thanks for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: So extinction event, last time I heard that involved dinosaurs. Uh, is the weed industry going to become like dinosaurs is it going to go away
5: (laughs) yeah i think it's actually a a very good term to use in here because much like the dinosaurs uh you know when they went extinct it was largely because of a a darwinism thing and what we're seeing right now is economic darwinism in uh this very young and very fickle cannabis industry that we have um you know last year we saw a uh, a mini extinction event, uh, extinction event, with a lot of our cultivators here in California, and this year we're it's probably that fate is going to be seen by our retailers.
1: You know, before weed was legal, I never heard stories that uh, hey, the uh, underground illegal wheat industry is facing an extinction event. But now that it's legal, we hear that it's facing extinction. Did being legalized kill it?
5: Uh, that is a. Uh... That is a one we could debate for ages. Uh, you know the regulatory everyone wanted legalization. Uh, everyone was clamoring for it for for decades. Now that we have it i'm I'm sure folks are kind of regretting uh classic watch what you wish for kind of situation. Uh, with legalization came over taxation, over regulation, high compliance fees, and a whole other uh, slew of things, which ironically, Really enabled the black market. Who decided not to convert over to the licensed market, and uh, a lot of the folks who are trying to operate legally are are suffering.
2: You know, I'm I'm curious though why that didn't happen. For example, with alcohol. I mean, after uh, you know, prohibition ended, right, and and alcohol was legalized you didn't see a black market thrive for, you know, booze, uh, you know, stores, (laughs) stores were thriving. They, they still are thriving. Why is that not happening with marijuana? Why?
5: What you mentioned, you don't, we don't, I'm not going down the street to my local, uh, moonshine bootlegger and, and getting alcohol. I'm going to the store and getting it. And I think that's, you know, largely because of the over taxation, um, in our industry. Uh, you know, alcohol, you know, even though we have legalization, it's still just on a federal a state level. Uh, we still have a whole bunch of problems all leading up to the fact that it's still federally illegal. And so it just kind of permeates every aspect of, of business, like inability to get a bank account, inability to go get a business loan from a, a major in, uh, financial institution, uh, crazy taxes, and so those are those are with cards like that, it's difficult to play a winning hand. Um, and but, you know, kind of similar to the alcohol industry, uh, we're seeing, you know, a lot of the mom and pops being shut out and moving more towards consolidation and the, the bigger conglomerates still surviving. And so I think where cannabis is going to end up ultimately after all this is said and done, is similar to the alcohol industry, where we have, you know, very huge companies at the top. And, you know, maybe we have some, you know, craft breweries here and there, but it'll be largely dominated by, uh, you know, a few cannabis companies.
1: All right, Michelle Mavagat, uh, Cannabis Attorney here in L.A. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Chirp, chirp.
1: That's
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's the next clue, next hint for a story we are going to get to at the (laughs) Mm -hmm. end of the show.
1: Chirp, chirp. There's hint number three. Hint number three. Uh, Right now, though, a generational battle is brewing on the home front. And we mean that literally. Baby boomers, boomers, yeah, sure. Baby boomers Boomers, and millennials are clashing when it comes to buying homes. Jessica Lounds is a deputy chief economist and vice president of research at the National Association of Realtors. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: So uh, what is this battle and who's winning?
0: <laughs> well, boomers are winning because they have the money. Uh, what we're seeing right now is that even though millennials are the largest generation in the U.S. and they're ready to enter into home ownership, they're really struggling to enter in. And for the last eight years, millennials have been the largest generation. This year, boomers are the largest generation.
2: So in order for millennials to get a real deal on homes, would they frankly have to wait for boomers
1: to die?
0: Well, that's a little bleak. Um, Yes, but but that's kind of what
1: it is, isn't it? That's who we are. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think the the right approach could be looking at density restrictions, looking at zoning, looking at building more homes and more affordable properties. That could be a solution. We just don't have to uh, wait for folks to die and to inherit properties. We have to deal with solutions today. And we know that people are living longer, healthier lives and people are aging in place. They want to stay in their home. And that's one of the reasons why we're really seeing this conflict right now.
1: All right. So at the risk of being a traitor to my kind, what can millennials do to kind of level the playing field a little bit more for, or for their side?
0: Well, it's difficult. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this is an easy solution here, especially when we look at your local market. We know it's incredibly difficult. Home prices are very high and home sales, frankly, have been down because they are so high and the lack of available affordable inventory. If you're a teacher out there, the the suggestions that I'm going to have are probably going to be off the table uh, because of the lack of supply. So things that we're seeing successful millennial homebuyers do to enter into home ownership and first-time home buyers, is move in with mom and dad for a temporary time period to build up that savings for a down payment. Use uh, down payment resources if they're available. And I know that they are are not right now in California, that that quickly went away um, as there was such strong demand. So looking at sources like that could be quite helpful. A lot of people, again, taking loans from mom and dad, too, taking advantage of FHA loan programs and VA programs uh and taking a look at those as well. So you don't have to put down as big of a down payment.
2: But I'm sure some millennials might be thinking, well, how long do I have to move back with mom and dad until, like, I'm 35 or what?
0: <laughs> well, sadly, the the typical age of a first-time homebuyer this year is now 36. 36. So it's actually close yeah, 36. And it had traditionally been between 28 and 33 for 40 years that we collected data. This year, it skyrocketed to 36 years old. People are having to save for longer periods of time, and they're, they're really having a lot of problems doing that with the rise in rents, student loan debt, childcare costs. All of those things are now adding up because, frankly, 36 years old is approaching middle age and all of the problems that go with that as well.
1: So, uh, does this also depend on location? Because, uh, you know, we in California, especially Southern California, talk about how uh, difficult it is in the housing market here, as opposed to other places in the country, how much more expensive it is here. So, is the battle worse in places like Southern California? And is there a place where uh, millennials might have more of a chance against baby boomers somewhere else?
0: Certainly. I, California is is probably one of the worst areas in the country when we talk about housing affordability and the ability to enter into homeownership, especially for first time homebuyers. Uh, but when we look at other areas of the country, it, it's less of a struggle. And that's one of the reasons of, that when people had the ability to work remote, when they had the chance to actually not have to be in expensive city centers, we saw these migration flows into more affordable areas. And people have embraced moving to outer suburbs, moving to small towns as they look to affordability. But as we look at that, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that millennials and Gen Xers are embracing that because they have remote work. But that's always where boomers have retired as well, is in quieter areas. So as we think about that, that struggle may be there.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Jessica Louts, uh, Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors. So you're like a trader. In a way, yes. Yeah, no, no, you're, yeah, you're, you're I a am. traitor
2: to your generation. I am. You are.
1: Yes. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Now, there are multiple reports saying Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is going to announce next week that he is running for president. And that
2: means he has to confront the, pun coming, here we go, elephant, that's right, in the room, Donald Trump. Matt Makoviak is a Republican strategist and president of Potomac Strategy Group. Matt, thanks for being with us.
6: Pleasure. How are you?
2: Okay. So, um, you know, there was a time when it seemed like Ron DeSantis was trying to out-Trump Trump. Trump, But how do you out-Trump Trump Trump when Trump is in and Trump can't be (laughs) out-Trumped?
6: This is one of the strategic uh, dilemmas, I think, not just DeSantis is facing, but most of the other field is facing. And that is, um, you know, the more you take Trump on, the more you become unacceptable to his voters. Right. So you you really want to try to thread the needle uh, where you sort of softly contrast with him, whether that be on temperament or on winning elections, perhaps on a couple policy issues. uh, But you don't do it in such a way that you make it impossible for his voters to to move from him to you. And that's one of the things that's happening right now is you don't see anyone in the field really taking Trump on. And so because of that, he keeps growing, he keeps getting stronger, his poll numbers go up. Now, look, I don't think polling matters this early. Uh, We don't even know who's in the field yet. We haven't had our first debate yet. We haven't had these candidates running in the early states with campaigns on the ground. But, I mean, Trump's in a strong position. Uh, What's interesting about the DeSantis place right now is he hasn't really been fighting back. He hasn't had a mechanism to do that. He hasn't been a candidate. He's had a legislative session. Uh, That all changes next week when he gets in. He's going to be not just defending himself, but being on offense, too.
1: So does it? feel to you as a strategist like what some of these other Republican contenders are doing in not taking on Trump directly. They'd rather hold their fire and hope that the slow drip, drip, drip of investigations, indictments and charges will serve to weaken him and take him out so that one of them can then surge to the forefront.
6: Yep. They all want to be the the, the candidate the alligator eats last. And, you know, that Republicans tried that in 2016. Cruz, Rubio, Kasich all stayed in. They didn't unify. Rubio finished third uh, in Florida. Kasich, you know, I think got second in New Hampshire and didn't win anywhere else. Cruz kind of hung on for a while, but in the end, you know, couldn't quite get there. Um, I do think, and of course, the uh, presidential uh, system on the Republican side is changing. More states have gone to winner take all. It is going to be more important uh, in 2024 than it was in 2016 that the field unify behind someone. Uh, probably no later than the end of January uh, for some that person to have a chance. You know, Trump doesn't have a majority of our of our electorate. He has call it 30, maybe 35 percent of the electorate. And so if you have that that split eight or nine or 10 different ways, it's enough for him to win these states. If it's if it's, you know, him versus someone else, whether that be DeSantis or Pence or, uh, you know, Nikki Haley or or whoever, uh, if it's a head to head race, it could be different. Uh, I do think you're going to see on the debate stage starting uh, starting in August in Milwaukee or excuse me, it might be late July in, in uh, Milwaukee. You're going to see the candidates start to take him on. The question is, can they can they withstand his attacks? Uh, can they land a punch? Can they start to make his voters have second thoughts? His base is so intense uh, and, and sticks with him through thick and thin. It, it's it's a tough challenge. You know, you've got eight or nine candidates that are going to fight for the 70 percent of the vote that's up for grabs. If that gets splintered, then Trump's going to do really well and he's going to be the nominee again.
2: I presume that that Trump will, true to form, be Trump. And as DeSantis comes into the race and others come into the race, he's going to go on the offensive. Uh, But is that risky for him as well? Because if he does that, he risks alienating potential voters who are not part of his normal base, but who he might be able to persuade to vote for him.
6: Yeah, not a lot of evidence that he looks at it that way. Um, And it's one of the biggest concerns about him in a general election. Um, I, I, based on what we've seen, I don't see how he has grown, uh, his coalition, how he has broadened out his support over the last, call it three years. Um, you know, it's not just the candidates he's endorsed, many of whom have failed in, in, in swing districts and in swing States, but even the issues he talks about, you know, looking backwards at, at the 2020 election, talking about January 6th, he, he seems less focused on the future, um, than, than most candidates, successful candidates are. So, um, Sure. You know, if he wants to attack Sanders or Pence or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, could he potentially uh, alien himself from their supporters, both in the primary and the general? Sure. Uh, in the end, Republicans are going to generally support the Republican nominee. This election in the fall next year is going to be decided by swing voters, by soft Republicans, by independents, by conservative Democrats, by working class voters in places like Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin. Those five states are going to decide this thing. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence that Trump's focused on the general election, on, on, on growing and broadening out his appeal. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of Republican professionals have doubts about his ability to win a general election.
1: All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Matt uh, Mikowiak is a Republican strategist, president of Potomac Strategy Group. You're listening to X In Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Feeling a bit down,
2: maybe a little bit stressed. There is something very simple, apparently, you can do to feel better.
1: Yeah, wait, go outside, I, listen to birds no, wait, sing. Now, now I feel more stressed. What was that? That well, let's it was a bird? try it again. Listen yeah, carefully it, it, yeah, and what?
2: and relax, Charles. Okay, okay, let me take a deep breath.
1: Don't you feel better? No, but okay. Right. <laughs> anyway, yes. For regular, normal people, people yes, not you me. can go outside and listen to the birds sing. Two recent studies found that seeing and hearing birds. Could be good for your mental health. John, uh, Joan, I should say, uh, Strassman is an evolutionary biologist at Washington University in St. Louis. He's got a book out called uh, Slow Birding, the Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Backyard. Thanks for joining us.
7: Delighted to be here.
1: So for myself, uh, and I'm the person I know the best. I know that there have been times in my life when I was feeling very stressed, very depressed, and I would walk outside. I didn't do it consciously, but as I was outside, I began to pay attention and listen to the birds. I did feel better. So is that what this is about?
7: Um, yes, I, I I would say so. I think that uh, listening to birds is, is very calming and uh, makes us understand our place in the universe may not be... Uh, as important as our problems sometimes make it seem.
2: But doesn't it depend on the kind of bird? I mean, some birds like crows, for example, I find crows just annoying. Uh, not the bird itself, but just the the uh, sound that they make. Uh, other birds are very pleasant. So doesn't it depend on, on what kind of bird you're listening to?
7: Um, I think it probably depends on the kind of birds, your past experiences with those birds. Uh, some people in the South really don't like great tailed grackles. Some people don't like crows. I love the fish crows that are in my neighborhood. And it just makes me feel really special that we have those birds calling it uh, my neighborhood home. So I, I think, yes, maybe we love the songbirds the best. But uh, yeah. So.
1: It, it, you're an evolutionary biologist, so uh, my question would be, here's some more birds. Uh, is it something to do with how humans respond to these the higher frequency bird songs? Whereas a bird that's got a lower kind of a caw, like an eagle or a hawk coming at you, is going to get a different response than the little tiny pretty uh, songbirds, right?
7: Um, I, I couldn't really... Uh claim to be an expert on that question I think that uh, it has a lot to do with what we associate with the songs that we hear so these two studies were done in the UK and they have quite different birds from what we have but they were they were city birds and they were birds that you would see you know not in the not on it, it wasn't the cliff birds the 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 ducks and geese it was probably songbirds but i i think i think all birds are wonderful and it depends on your associations with them
2: i mean i wonder whether it would make a difference uh, if you're listening to the birds outside or if you bought a, a bird or birds as a, as a pet does that make a difference
7: Well, these two studies, one study was done outside and the other study was done playing songs uh, to two individuals and seeing how they felt after listening to them. So to me, it certainly is a lot more powerful to be outside and hear the whole uh, the whole diversity of all the songs that they sing. But that isn't really what these two studies, what one of these two studies shows.
2: But how do they know, and, and, and I'm curious if you know, how do they know that the uh, effect isn't just the, the bird sounds, but just the mere fact that you're outside and maybe you're enjoying your neighborhood and there's so many other sensory things, you know, you're taking in you know trees and, and if you live in certain areas, perhaps mountains or ocean, how did they distinguish between those elements making you feel better and isolating it to be bird sounds?
7: So that's a great question. And uh, as a scientist, one of the things we have to be really careful about is what is our control group? And so one of the studies simply contrasted bird songs to traffic noise and then did assessments of how people felt, how depressed they were and stuff, and found a strong effect for the bird song. So that one wasn't outside and it didn't consider other sorts of things the other study which was outside it was it used a an app where you just simply kind of recorded how you felt and that people weren't actually told that they were studying bird song in particular it was just that the analysis afterward found that it was after hearing bird song in particular that people felt better. And and that one had a huge, huge sample size. It was, uh, uh, twelve, what, nearly 1,300 people with uh,
2: about
7: 27,000 observations. So, yeah, so the controls are there and they're important.
1: Does the calming, de-stressing effect depend on also being outside and listening to the birds, or could you do it with, say, a sound machine that plays back bird song?
7: I would say that the that uh, Emil Stabi's study would say that yes, you can play the bird song inside. Um, I personally am a great advocate of getting outside and watching the birds.
2: See, see, I guess Rob, my my thing is, I take it all personally. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm serious. If I hear like birds, if I go outside and there's a there's a crow or something, and they're they're doing whatever they're doing, they're making whatever noise, I'm thinking this is where I go. I'm thinking. What are they saying about me?
1: <laughs> what they're, are they? They're talking about you. They're talking about your me,
2: and I want to know what it is they're saying. And you know, so I don't get, I don't get less stress. Right. I, I get more stress. Okay, uh,
1: Joan uh, Strassman. Thank you so much for you, uh, Joan. joining us today. Evolutionary biologist at Washington University uh, in St. Louis. and got a book out called Slow Birding. Yes. So check that out. Tell me you haven't thought that.
2: Tell me you haven't, you know, birds. You go under a tree and you hear a bunch of birds, and there's. Like that, right? And here's what I'm thinking. I hear that you're playing those birds. I'm thinking, what are they saying about me? I
1: know what they're saying about you. Yeah, what they're saying. Listen carefully.
2: Oh, they're saying they're
1: saying Charles Feldman is paranoid.
2: Is that what it is? That's what they're saying. Yeah. No, no, no. See, I think I think it's worse than that. I don't trust them.
1: (laughs) I don't. I don't. And and I know if my wife has the radio on at home, and that sounds. My cats are going crazy right now. See, I don't trust anything that can fly away. <laughs> there you go.
2: That's it for KDX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow. I like chickens because they can't fly away.
1: At 1 p.m.